Well, let me start. Here's a question for you. Have you had a time when you felt alone, deserted, even abandoned, perhaps anxious and fearful of what's going to happen to you? You know, maybe you were a kid at a shopping mall years back, got distracted by the candy shop, or, or what do kids get distracted by these days? Video game shop, whatever, electronic games. And then you lost contact with your parents for a few minutes. You know that feeling of uh, being anxious and fearful? You never see them again? Or have you known betrayal? Maybe a friend, you confided something very personal and private, and the next thing you know, the friends told the whole world about it, possibly even posting it on Instagram or whatever social media we use nowadays. Or perhaps you've experienced loss, something precious and important to you, an old keepsake, maybe something of great value. I've been reading pretty much uh, recently, very often scams coming through from the internet, texts, emails, people losing their life savings through investment scams, for instance. Or maybe disappointment. You thought you did well for an exam or a job interview. As it turned out, you didn't do as well as you thought you did. Anxiety, fear, betrayal, loss, disappointment. Well, that's the setting for our psalm today, Psalm 63. And so if you've never experienced any of this, or you don't think you'll ever experience them in your life, this sermon's not going to help you very much. Not much of a use to you. But I suspect not. Life has a habit of throwing us curveballs, and I suspect for all of us here, at one time or another, we've experienced some of these emotions. But look with me at the top of the Psalm, Psalm 63. You'll see the words there, a Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The wilderness of Judah. Well, in Canada, when you think of the word wilderness, what comes to mind is perhaps some romantic idea of being in the wild. You know, maybe somewhere about three hours north in Muskoka, you know, communing with nature, hiking, camping, canoeing, enjoying God's creation. But not in Israel, at least not in that part of the world. In Israel, wilderness is a desolate, deserted place. It's more like a desert, except without the sand dunes, a reed and dry. And in fact, we're told in Exodus 15, for instance, when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, we're told that he went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And in fact, in the Old Testament days, the wilderness was seen as a dangerous place, home of wild beasts and savage nomadic tribes. So it's not a nice place to be in. So what was David doing there? Well, he was on a run. He had just fled. Jerusalem. His throne has just been usurped. He had lost his home. Some of his family members in a rush had to be left behind in Jerusalem. He was running for his life. And the one who usurped his throne was none other than his son, Absalom. King David had been betrayed by his own son. Pam read for us earlier on and gave us the background to that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Absalom had spent the last four years doing his utmost to win over the hearts of the people of Israel. And now, King David 
was on the run with a motley group of followers. His son was coming for his life. I'm not sure what you felt was the most difficult time in your life, but I'll bet that it was probably not as bad as what King David was going through at this point in time. I've been through some tough times in my life, but I hadn't needed to be on the run because my son wanted to kill me. Well, at least not yet. And I certainly hadn't lost the kingdom yet, right? And it is in this setting that we are told that King David wrote this psalm. A psalm that became so important to the early church that Chrysostom, Chrysostom is a famous preacher in the fourth century. We uh, read his prayers sometimes in our service. He said that it was ordained and agreed upon by the early church fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. They used to sing their psalm rather than read them. For those who came to Logos last week, uh, David was telling us all about that. We should bring back single assumption, we? Yeah. And in the early church, this psalm was in fact sung every morning service or every time there was a public gathering. And so it's with that background that I want us to look at this psalm in greater detail. I'll go through 11 verses in four parts. Firstly, desire for God, verses 1 to 4, delight in God, verses 5 to 7, dependence on God, verse 8, and defense of God, verses 9 to 11. I hope you appreciate the effort uh, in trying to get all this started with the letter D, and hope that helps you remember it better. Desire for God, verses 1 to 4. The background should help you understand some of the emotions that King David must have had been experiencing. I can think of a lot of things that I would be longing for if I were him in his shoes, right? In the wilderness, ousted from his throne. And some things that would come to the top of my mind would be things like, well, I want water, food, perhaps my bed, you know, my pillow and, and the usual creature comforts. And in some darker moments, maybe perhaps revenge. Those would be, be the things in my mind, but not the case with King David. Look with me at verse 1. Oh God, you are God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. David's first and most pressing and earnest thoughts were about God. His soul and his flesh, and that is the psalmist's way of, you know, David's way of saying his whole being was seeking after God. As someone puts it, David was longing for a sense of the presence of God. As a friend longs for one from whom he is separated, or even as a lover longs for his beloved. Why is that? Why is David seeking God when he's on the run in the wilderness? Well, the clue is in the first line. Oh God, you are my God. This God is David's God, not his father, Jesse's God, not the God of Israel. But first and foremost, you are my God, David's God. And where would such a strong sense of possession, the sense that this is my God come from? Well, it comes from knowing who this God is to begin with, 
And we see that in verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. The word so here has this sense of, and this is the reason why, right? David is saying, I long for my God because I know my God, and this is the reason why I know him. Because I have looked upon him. I have experienced his presence in the sanctuary. And the sanctuary here would refer to the tabernacle because the temple was not yet built at this point. And in the sanctuary, David has beheld God's power and glory. Well, what do you find in the sanctuary in the tabernacle? You find the most important article there would be the ark, which represents actually God's power and glory. We see that in Psalm 78, verses 61, verse 61, where in the battle with the Philistines, the ark was then captured by the Philistines. And God described that moment as him forsaking his dwelling and, quote, delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. And when the ark was captured by the Philistines, we are told that God's glory had departed from Israel. You see in 1 Samuel 4. So the ark represented God's power and glory. And in the wilderness now, David similarly longed for God. And why was he able to thirst for God, to faint for God? How did he develop such spiritual appetite? Because he had worshipped God in a sanctuary. And it would be the same now, wilderness or no wilderness, because God is not a prisoner of his own sanctuary. But more than a power and a glory of God, it is the cassette of God that's really key to understanding David's desire for God. You see, the Hebrew word cassette, which is often translated in the ESV uh, that you have right now, steadfast love. In other versions, perhaps loving kindness. But it doesn't quite capture the, the whole gamut of the meaning of the word. Because cassette is more than that. It is God's unchangeable, unconditional, and self-sacrificing love for people who don't deserve it. These are undeserving people. And this cassette of God, this, this steadfast love of God for David is better than all the things in life, all the things he ever wanted, his throne, his family, his wealth, and so on. Wait, is that what verse 3 says? That's not what verse 3 says. Look again at verse 3 with me. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Not just the best things in life, like family or home or whatever it is, but life itself. I want that to sing in for a moment. God's cassette, his steadfast love is better than life itself. David is saying here that he would rather die than to live without God's, without God's steadfast love. And is it any wonder why David would go on then to say, my lips will praise you, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Friends, as I reflect on how David was able to long for God the way he did, even when he was in the wilderness, I'm reminded of the words of a wise pastor. And let me quote him. He said, it is our worship, our regular worship. In fact, times like this that prepares us for the crisis experience of life. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And David had in him a deep love for the Lord and a desire to please him. 
because David had seen God's power and glory in his house. He was able to see it in the wilderness as well. David's wilderness experience has become a worship experience. End quote. Is that what your regular worship is doing for you? Developing that same desire for God? And if you're not regularly spending time in worship and you want to develop that eager longing, I think there's no better way than to start each day by earnestly seeking God's face through the study of His Word, through meditation, through prayer. And my prayer for each one of us here is that we will earnestly seek our God and to develop that deep love for Him and a strong desire to please Him. Desire for God. Next, delight in God. And if we have such a desire for God, our God will not disappoint. We will be satisfied. We will find delight in Him. And this was David's experience. In verse 5, David tells us that as he seeks, he is being satisfied. His whole being, his soul, will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I was back in Singapore this summer, and my siblings and extended family decided to celebrate my birthday in advance. And so we went to quite a few well, Michelin-star restaurants, some of the best meals that I had, indulged in some of the best quality durians. For those of you don't know, who don't know, durians is considered the king of the fruits in that part of the world. So I know a little bit about what David means when he says he'll be satisfied with fat and rich food. Because I was very satisfied. I put on four kilograms when I came back. Well, the only problem is this. The original Hebrew word for fat and rich food actually literally means marrow and fat. I'm not too sure that would, you know, be something that I, my idea of the best food. But then again, I don't think durian would be your idea of the king of fruits. But that's what God gives us when we seek him. He gives us his best. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Let me read that for you. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let me read that again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, our God, he doesn't hold back. He gives us his best. In fact, he gave us his son. And so is it any wonder at all that David is not just thinking about God early in the morning? By the way, that's how the first verse uh, in many of the earlier translations translates it. Like for King James Version, for instance, the first verse is, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. In fact, that's why uh, the more traditional churches would think of Psalm 63 as a morning psalm to be sung at the beginning of each day. So David's thinking about God early in the morning and even when he's sleepless at night, when he's awake in, you know, verse 6, in the watches of the night. And the idea there is to give us a sense of the slow progress of the hours. I don't know, you know, maybe... Uh, just couldn't fall asleep. He was tossing and turning. Even while he's doing that, he's meditating on God. Because David knows that he can be satisfied in God 
And when he does that, he can find his delight in God. Because this God has been his help whenever he needed it. We believe that this wilderness experience is the second one he had with uh, running away from his son, Absalom. But he had a first one. And some of you will know the story of how King Saul was chasing after David in the wilderness years back. And those of you who know the story will remember how God saved David during those times when, in fact, King Saul was very close to catching up uh, with David. And so because of that, David can sing for joy in the shadow of God's wings. And that phrase, in the shadow of God's wings, often refers to a place of safety. And for him, for David, that's where he finds safety. David's soul is a soul that is satisfied in God, a soul that finds its delight in God. Where do you find your delight in? What are you finding your satisfaction in? In things, perhaps in finances, in your work, perhaps in relationships? Might I suggest that we can learn from David here, first and foremost, for us to find our satisfaction in God, because he doesn't shortchange us and he will not disappoint us. Everything else will, but not God. Many Christians today may well be living in dry and parched lands, possibly even dry and parched churches. But like David, that's no reason why we can't, even in those places, be satisfied in God, delight in God. So desire for God, delight in God, next, dependence on God. The third part is just one verse, verse 8. David writes, My soul clings to you, my right, your right hand upholds me. The word cling here has a sense of cleaving to, to hold fast and so to follow after. Think of two pieces of wood that's being glued together. That's how David is describing himself, holding fast to God, not letting him go, but falling close to God. And this is in fact the, often the image in many parts of the Old Testament uh, for loyalty to God. You cling to God rather than following after other gods. There's this sense of active devotion and obedience on the part of David. Nothing passive about it at all. It's both a submissive faith in God as well as an active pursuit of God. It's like that story in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth. Uh, I think many of you know the story. If you don't, um, here's a gist of it. Naomi, um, Israelite, she moved over to Moab, a neighboring country with her husband and two sons because of a famine in the place she lived in, Judah. The sons then married the Moabite women, one of them called Opah and the other one called Ruth. And then Naomi's husband, and her two sons died. And Naomi decided at this time, with the famine over in Judah, to return to Judah. And Naomi urged her daughter-in-law to stay in Moab with their families. She didn't see any future for them back in Judah. And verse 14 of chapter 1 of Ruth uh, tells us, Then they, the three ladies, Naomi, Opah, and Ruth, they lifted up their voices and wept together. And Opah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth was clinging on to Naomi. 
She refused to leave Naomi. And hear what Ruth has to say. Remember, this is a pagan, this is a woman, a Moabite woman in her own land in Moab, choosing instead to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Judah, a foreign land. And in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Ruth, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's what clinging looks like. And that's the sort of clinging on that David's referring to over here. The sort that holds fast and follows after. And as he held fast, verse 8 tells us that God's right hand was upholding him. Right hand here symbolizes the hand of authority and power. God is helping him, protecting him, upholding him. And so you may ask, who's holding who? While David was clinging on to God, God was holding on to him. See, both are at work. Both are holding on. And in a sense, that's the same with us today. Remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, 13? Paul was writing to the church in Philippi. Let me read for you. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, Paul is urging the church at Philippi not to dwell on their past laurels. They were doing well as a church, but rather to work hard day by day to grow in their faith, to obey God, to be more and more like Christ. And this is not a means of salvation because these are all Christians already, but rather the evidence that they are already saved. And that's why Paul tells them to work out their salvation, not work for their salvation. And at the same time, Paul tells them it is God who works in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you see that? Even the will to work out their salvation comes from God. And here's the mystery of that divine sovereignty and human responsibility both at work. In our maturing as Christians, in our sanctification, it is always 100% God's work and 100% our work. Desire for God, delight in God, dependence on God, and finally, defense of God. We're finally told here in the last three verses why David uh, is in the wilderness to begin with. Our last three verses tell us that his enemies are seeking to destroy him, in this case, his son Absalom. We're back to the real world. The world where there will be betrayal, where there's anxiety and fear, there's going to be loss, there's disappointment. And that's the world we all lived in. But even then, because David knows that God is upholding him, he can count on the defense of God, God defending him when he meets his enemies. These last three verses were written by someone who is clearly confident 
someone who seeks God in the midst of difficult times and has been satisfied by his presence and his protection and is now confident that those who seek to destroy him will be destroyed themselves, killed by the sword. Verse 10. And in verse 10, we read too, and just to press home the point, that these enemies will be a portion for the jackals. Well, as you know, jackals are the scavengers in the wilderness, eating the remains of those fallen enemies, which means that they will not even get a proper barrier. David is that confident of victory over his enemies. And in the last verse, verse 11, we are told, but the king shall rejoice in God. You see, David's rejoicing is not his victory over his enemies. He will be victorious over them. He knows that they will be killed. But rather, David's rejoicing is in God, the giver of the victory. David is clear that for him, God the giver is the one who deserves the praise and the rejoicing, not the gift. Something that we can so often easily forget, isn't it? So do remember the giver and less the gift. Let me conclude. Someone once said there are three types of people in any Christian gathering. There are those who are Christians in name only. They seem to be flowing after God and Jesus Christ and say that they are, but thus is a false following. Like that of the five foolish virgins in one of Jesus' parables, right? Where they did not truly know God and, and were rejected by him. So that's the first thought, sort, first type. The second type are those who are following Jesus, but following at a distance. Well, think of the time when Peter was at a courtyard, when Jesus was arrested, keeping his distance, right? And then the third time, who, let me quote, in storm and sunshine, cleave to him and enjoy daily communion with him. End quote. In storm and sunshine, cleave to him and enjoy daily communion with him. These people want God and they want him intensely because they know that he and he alone will satisfy the deep longings of their soul. David was a person who desired God above everything else. And Psalm 63 is the expression of that longing. And in this Psalm, David shows us how he seeks after God, worships and meditates, and is satisfied by God's presence. But this was not done in the comfort of his palace or perhaps some retreat center. It was in the midst of being pursued by his son, who has overtaken his throne and wants to kill him. Today, we live in a world that in many ways is not dissimilar to the world that David lived in, perhaps less dramatic, but we're never short of unwanted surprises, disappointments, and there are battles that we fight each day. Life will continue to throw, throw us curveballs because that's the real world. But what we can learn from the Psalm is this, that it is precisely in these challenging times that we will find God's steadfast love most satisfying. And so how can we, who live in the 21st century, rejoice in the midst of these difficult circumstances? How can we, like David, be confident of victory in our Christian life? 
Psalm 63 gives us a checklist on how we can do that. Look with me again at Psalm 63, page 4 of your bulletin. Look for the verses with the word soul, which, as I mentioned earlier on, actually means your whole being, right? Three questions to ask of ourselves. Question one, from verse one, do I have a soul that thirsts for God? Do I have a soul that thirsts for God? Question two, verse five, do I have a soul that is satisfied in God? Do I have a soul that is satisfied in God? Question three, verse eight, do I have a soul that clings to God? Do I have a soul that clings to God? As we start on a new school term, or perhaps for this coming Thanksgiving, might we consider what our answers to these three questions might be? Take a week, take a moment sometime this week to do just that. Better still, for support and accountability, do it with someone else, someone you can trust. Write down your answers, where you think you are in respect to these three questions. And with your answer that you have this week as your baseline, aim to ask yourself the same three questions every six months, just to have a check. We do our checkups at the doctors every year, every six months, or the dentist. Think of this as a checklist of questions we can ask ourselves and see if your answers tell you that you're drawing closer to or drifting further from this amazing God whose steadfast love is better than life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.